0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast about the spec fic narratives we read Watch and play. My name is Mike Pershan, and I'm a professor of English at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta, in the great white north of Canada. Uh, This first episode is going to explain what you can expect from future episodes of this podcast, the basic format of the show, what it's all about. And to do that, I'm going to explain the name Triple Bladed Sword. Uh, Why choose this name? But I thought that, you know, people would wonder why, you know, why call it that? Where does that come from? And I thought if I explain it now, then there's no mystery. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized that explaining the name Triple Bladed Sword would also be a way of explaining the content and focus of the podcast. So there's the three blade idea is worked out in three, three sort of different levels. First, and foremost, three blades of speculative fiction, which is my area of specialization as an academic. And those three blades, if you've never heard the term speculative fiction, it's an umbrella term for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And I really love it because it shows that these three genres that some people think of as being, you know, very distinct from each other are actually quite uh, permeable. And the, you know, sometimes We've got something that feels like it's a little bit science fiction and a little bit fantasy, and there you've got Star Wars. Um, Or something's got a little bit of fantasy and you've got a little bit of of horror, and that actually is the the movie that is the provenance of the triple-bladed sword itself, The Sword and the Sorcerer, from uh, 1982. Uh, a B-movie, a real B-movie. I'm going to talk about that today. But those are the three blades of speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. So that's one of the things that this podcast is going to be about. And then the other thing that this podcast is about are the three blades of uh, Linda Hutchins' modes of engagement. Linda Hutchins is an academic who wrote a book called A Theory of Adaptation. And she's talking about how we turn books into movies, how we turn books into plays, but her theory gets a lot broader than that. And uh, the broadness is uh, found in her modes of engagement. And the three modes of engagement that Linda Hutchin talks about are telling, showing, and interacting. I don't like the feel of that. I don't like the flow of that because it's like two syllables, two syllables, and then you know, interacting. Um, So I go telling, showing, and playing. Uh, That's how I think of the three modes of engagement. And that's what I meant at the beginning of the show when I said the specfic narratives that we read, watch, and play. Uh, So we've got, you know, telling is books, for the most part, showing movies, television, for the most part, and then playing, interacting, uh, games, obviously, and other forms of, of interactive narrative. So, Three Blades of Speculative Fiction, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. Three Blades of Modes of Engagement, Telling, Showing, and Playing. And then uh, people have been asking me for years to talk a little bit about my experience as someone who is used to be a person of faith, uh, and in rather deep faith as well, uh, through Christianity. I grew up Evangelical Christian, but who is no longer a believer. So I'm going to share anecdotes, and they won't always be related to faith, but they might be, um, just because that's my history. I've got a long history with that. So there's a, there's a pre-faith part of my life, which pretty much leads up to uh, 1985, uh, 1986, 1987, I, uh, my teens, I was still sort of figuring that out. And then I was a person of faith, I would say, from those years up until somewhere in the late 2000s. And that's when things started to slide. And so then there's a post-faith me. And those are things that are going to come up as things I'm interested in talking about and things that people have asked me to share. So those are the three blades uh, uh, of of my life, I guess you say. Uh, Pre-faith, faith, faith, and post-faith. I need better terms for those, but those are the ones I'm working with. So to illustrate those three blades, I'm going to talk about this movie, The Sword and the Sorcerer. Which is one of my favorite movies of all time, even though it's really, in in objective terms, it's utter crap. It's a B movie. It's solidly a B movie. Uh, when I watch it now, I can see the, you know, the, the, the that, that it was filmed. It was filmed in a hotel, really. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty swanky hotel. It's called the Mission Inn, and it's in, in Riverside, California. And incidentally, I've I've been there. Uh, as, a, as an academic, I went there for uh, a conference on uh, science fiction, uh, the Eton Conference, Eaton Eton Science Fiction Conference in Riverside, California, at the University of California, one of their satellite, I guess, uh, campuses. And the conference was held in the Mission Inn, and I didn't know it at the time. I just kept thinking, wow, this place looks really familiar. It looks super cool. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, but I didn't realize that I was standing in places that, you know, The Sword and the Sorcerer had been filmed. But, but that goes to show you something about the budget that The Sword and the Sorcerer was working with. Uh, there's a great book about fantasy cinema uh, called Empires of the Imagination by Alec Worley. And Worley says this about the budget for The Sword and the Sorcerer. Filmed and released at the same time as Conan. Albert Pyun's independently produced The Sword and the Sorcerer was made entirely in Los Angeles for apparently less than it cost to build Falsa Doom's Mountainside Temple. Fulsa Doom's Mountainside Temple from the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan the Barbarian. So making an entire movie for the amount that it cost to build one set for Conan. But that's also one of the things that's that's laudatory so something that we can say, wow, about The Sword and the Sorcerer is that Albert Pion made this movie on a budget of $4 million. And then the movie made $39.1 million. Um, But it was the most profitable indie film of 1982. I was 11 years old when the movie was released on April 23rd of 1982. Um, Hardly a month into my 11th year, and I desperately wanted to see this movie. I remember seeing the ad for it in our newspaper, our local newspaper, back in the days when the only way you could find out about upcoming movies was either to be lucky enough to see a preview for it on television, to see a preview at the movie theater, or to read about it uh, in the entertainment section of your newspaper, and they would have these wonderful ads that were the posters of the films. And I remember the, the tagline for the sword and the sorcerer, a lusty epic of revenge and magic, dungeons and dragons, wizards and witches, damsels and desire and a warrior caught between. Ooh, 11 year old me wanted to see that movie so badly. Uh, all you, they, I mean, they had me at epic um, but Dungeons and Dragons, that totally sold me because I was getting into Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game, in 1982. It was it was just on my horizon. I was just getting into it. And I was hard into Tolkien, loving uh, The Hobbit. I'd already read Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'd listened to the um, BBC radio series, which was played on CBC radio here in Canada, and um, and and so i knew those stories i loved fantasy i was starting to read conan comics and to read the conan paperbacks that were coming out but i mean fantasy was everywhere you didn't have to really work too hard to get fantasy but to get to see a fantasy film like this when you're 11 years old good luck it was a lusty epic there are damsels in desire uh you can take a look at any of the posters for this movie and immediately see that you know this was one of those Heroic fantasy films, this is a genre, it is firmly within heroic fantasy, this term that refers to uh, the kind of stories that we think about when we think about Conan as opposed to the high fantasy of Lord of the Rings. Although there is a strong high fantasy element in this movie, and I think a lot of people have missed that. But uh, I wanted to see this movie really, really bad. And a friend of mine, um, I shouldn't say that, he wasn't a friend, he was a classmate. Uh, in in I was in grade five, uh, and he had the novelization of this and was trying to read his way through it. Now, the novelization of The Sword and the Sorcerer is abysmal. It is some of the worst writing ever put on the page, Uh, and I do not recommend picking it up and reading it. No matter how much I could recommend the guilty pleasure of watching this movie, I cannot recommend reading it, save as an exercise in finding out just how craptastic a book really can be. So when we talk about modes of engagement, um, you know, novelizations of movies are often pretty bad. This one is is a, a, an extra level. It's it's down in like the Dantean ninth level of hell. Things get frozen, uh, agony uh, kind of because uh, you, you 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 just can't read on. You just can't read on. Um, but I didn't own the novel and. And I, and I wanted to know what happened. Like usually if a movie would come out and it was rated R, as this movie was in Canada, um, then I would, I would just sort of tap out and read the book. Um, but this movie I had to see. And I convinced my dad to take me to the drive-in. Now, I don't know if that had happened before this or if it happened afterwards, because I know my dad snuck me in to see Conan the Barbarian as well. But my dad 100% uh, snuck me in to see sword and the sorcerer at a drive-in uh release and there was a movie before it um that was probably the better of the two movies I don't remember that one because I was pretty checked out for it I think I might have even slept my dad woke me up and 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 you know and I was under like I was under a blanket when we when we went into the movie theater it was great um i love that the covert nature of that my father you know being open to taking me to a movie like that of course the great irony of my father taking me to conan the barbarian or the sword and the sorcerer is that he would always cover my eyes in the sex scenes like if people were taking their clothes off my dad was covering my eyes if they were hacking each other's heads off that was okay uh which is bizarre to me i I think back on that and i think it's a little bit strange it's a little bit strange so, you know, I, I saw the movie. I loved the movie. Why did I love the movie? I love the movie because there's a triple-bladed sword in it, for heaven's sake. The, like, this movie has a this huge two-handed sword. this like big chrome monstrosity. And, and right there, by the way, I want to say that I think that one of the big influences on this movie was the success of Excalibur. John Borman's Excalibur. A version of the story of King Arthur which was filled with revenge and magic, Dungeons and Dragons, Wizards and Witches, Damsel and Desire. I mean, you want to see a movie where there's a bunch of naked people, the uh, bizarre sex scene involving a guy in full plate armor and a woman with nothing on, which never made any sense to me. Every time I saw that, I was just like, that, no, no, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. But anyway, Excalibur was very successful. And you've got all these, this crazy chrome looking... Armor in that movie, and the sword in *The Sword and the Sorcerer*, I, I, I think it's inspired by that. It's also inspired by the airbrushed look of of fantasy artists like Boris Vallejo, who took the really gritty, blood and dirt Conan of uh, Frank Frazetta and shined him up a bit. You know, oiled him down before he got into the got into the fight, um, and everything glistens in Vallejo's uh, art. And I think that th- there's these, these influences. I mean, if you look at the, I'm, I'm looking right now at one of the posters for the sword and the sorcerer and all of these images, if I reference an image, it's probably going to be up at the Instagram for triple bladed sword. So you can check out those images there. Um, but I mean this, you know, all of the posters for the sword and the sorcerer are airbrushed, and airbrushing was huge in the eighties. And this movie is somewhat airbrushed but this sword three blades and the outer blades fire like they shoot out now watching this on dvd <laughs> you can see the string you couldn't see it in the movie theater because i mean this is a graininess to uh film especially when you went to see it at a drive-in you never got the kind of sharp image that we get today when we go and see a movie in digital or with you know some sort of imax style um projector, giving us this really high lumens, Uh, it was always a bit dim, and you were always squinting a bit to see what was going on, and so you couldn't see the string that was on the blade when it fired, but that thing straight up looks like model rocket shooting off of this sword. The actor has even got this look on his face like, oh damn, I have to, like, this is going to blow back in my face, but these blades shoot out, and for an 11-year-old kid who was just getting into Dungeons & Dragons, this was a mind melt. I loved that sword. I wanted that sword. Every time I played a character in Dungeons & Dragons for probably the next five or six years, it was either based on Snake Plissken from Escape from New York or Talon, the prince uh, who, who inherits the triple-bladed sword in The Sword and the Sorcerer. I don't want to summarize the plot of the sword and the sorcerer because you can read that on wikipedia but it is basically a standard fantasy tale of you killed my parents i have to kill you um the hero is the son of a king so he's you know he's he's the hidden prince but he goes off and he adventures after his family is killed and becomes a sort of Conan-esque character. But the movie doesn't begin there. It doesn't begin in a Conan style. In fact, it begins in a, in a, in a world and a feel that is more, as I said earlier, high fantasy. Um, And I'm going to get to this later, uh, but I think that people who just look at The Sword and the Sorcerer and say what we're seeing here is a cheap B-movie, it's a knockoff of Conan, um, are dismissing this film outright without really getting into some of its pedigree some of the influences the inspirations that led to its production and someone might say well why bother with the sword and the sorcerer because i love it that's why that's why i'm bothering that's why i'm doing this on my podcast but i also want to do it because i think that it's valuable to understand that something doesn't have to be high literature or even classic cinema to be worth our attention And that when we look closely at narratives that we love, we can find all sorts of treasures, as it were. I think there's lots of other reasons to see this movie as a sort of diamond in the rough, as it were. The people who worked on this film went on to bigger and better things. Most of the actors were people who would end up being in television uh, later on. Lee Horsley... Uh, would end up doing a uh, TV series he, he played the lead and the villain of the movie Richard Lynch uh, he played villains in a bunch of cheap films and television series uh, Richard Mole who played the the titular sorcerer went on to do really good work in comedy he was the he was the the guy who kicked people out of the court in night court he was he was bull the guy who played Talon's sidekick Uh, Joe Regalobuto, he won an Emmy for work that he did on Murphy Brown. One of the writers for the movie, Tom Karnowski, has gone on to become a big producer in Hollywood. And he was one of the producers, incidentally, on uh, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. So these are people who are cutting their teeth in Hollywood. These are people who are, are finding their way. And one of the other big opportunity zones from this film... Was in the was in um, prosthetic makeup effects because uh, Alan Apon, uh, who worked on the movie, has he he's worked on a bunch of Marvel movies. You look at Alan Apon's resume, and you're looking at Captain America, you're looking at the Avengers, you're looking at Westworld, and then Vay Neal is a giant in the field. and She also worked on the prosthetic effects for The Sword and the Sorcerer, but she has more recently worked on movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. Going further back, she worked on Edward Scissorhands, she worked on Beetlejuice. So these are people who are artists within the cinematic field, but they were working with a drastically reduced budget. And I am convinced that if Albert Pionn was a a more seasoned director and it had been given a larger budget that The Sword and the Sorcerer could have been a classic rather than just a cult classic. I'm not even sure it's a cult classic because I might be the only person in the world who likes it. But the reason that I want, you know, I, I start looking into it and I see these things and then I use those as ways to, you know, maybe justify why I'm looking at this. Nah. Um, there are other reasons for why I've been able to roll the sword and the sorcerer around in my head. I often tell my students, you know, if you push and prod at a work of art and it doesn't return that pushing and prodding, that that close investigation, that close reading... Well, you can still enjoy it, but it doesn't have any more to give you. Uh, What's been interesting for me as a scholar of speculative fiction is that the more that I've looked at The Sword and the Sorcerer, the more it has produced for me as I think about it in regard to um, the, the broader umbrella term of speculative fiction. So... How, how does this tie into those, those three blades of speculative fiction? Science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Well, let's just start with science fiction. This movie is not a science fiction movie, but it was clearly bankrolled based on not only the success of a movie like Excalibur, but Star Wars. Um, because Star Wars was sitting on the liminal space between science fiction and fantasy, and a lot of people have called it a science fantasy film, uh, it's a space opera in many ways, but it's also, it's, it's got swords, right? Lightsabers are swords, Jedis are wizards. It follows a traditional fantasy plot line. And I don't want to get into a huge rant about Joseph Campbell's heroic journey, which people talk about as though it's this timeless archetype. It's really not. It's a great way, though, of understanding Star Wars, because George Lucas was like an avid disciple of Joseph Campbell. And that Cambellian heroic narrative has been employed in not just Star Wars, but in many uh, fantasy works. And so um, there is this way in which Star Wars launches not only a plethora of science fiction films in the 1980s, late 70s, and then into the 1980s, but that it also opened up the gateway for fantasy uh, and to, to limited uh, success uh, that we just weren't at a point where fantasy worked as well as science fiction, uh, for all sorts of reasons in the 1980s. But the science fiction blade of speculative fiction at least helps launch the bankrolling of, of movies like the sword and the sorcerer, but really we're, we're dealing with the other two blades of speculative fiction, when we're looking at The Sword and the Sorcerer, and that's fantasy and horror. And as I've already said, with fantasy, we're seeing the influence of movies like Excalibur. Um, But also, uh, regularly, people conflate this movie, they associate this movie with Conan, and coming back to Alec Worley's Empires of the Imagination, he says colorful components like these, and he's talking about gracelessly gory sword fights, a lurk comic book glow to the film, uh, he also talks about the good-humored abandon of an Errol Flynn swashbuckler, which we'll want to come back to. But colorful components like these, says Worley, convey a spirit closer to Howard, he's talking about Robert E. Howard, the guy who wrote the Conan stories way back in the 1930s, than anything in Conan. But the similarity is hardly accidental since Pyun's movie, Sword and the Sorcerer, poaches just about every idea it has from Howard. I don't think this is true. It all ends true to superheroic tradition with a triumphant Talon riding off toward further adventures with a rousing cry to his comrades that sums up the ethos of the heroic fantasy superhero. We've a battle in the offing, kingdoms to save and women to love. But I don't I don't totally agree with Worley. I did for years. I used to say all the time that I felt like Sword and the Sorcerer was a better Conan movie than Conan was. Because John Milius's Conan movie is really a samurai film. It's very dour... It's, it's not particularly fun. The second Conan movie is a lot more fun. Although uh, I'm not sure that fun necessarily is, is part of the, the, the Conan thing that comes out of Robert E. Howard. And that's where I really disagree with Warley is that I don't think Pyun is cribbing from Howard. Save at the beginning of the movie. Absolutely at the beginning of the movie, Pyun is cribbing from Howard. At the beginning of the movie the king, the evil king, Cromwell, enlists the age of a long-dead sorcerer by raising him up. And it's a great scene uh, from the perspective of the third blade of speculative fiction, which is horror, that prosthetic makeup stuff that I was talking about before. And prosthetic makeup effects were really coming into their own at this point. Uh, people like Rob Bottin, Rick Baker, Tom Savini. These were the, these were the up-and-comers in, in movies like The Howling. American Werewolf in London, Wolfen, tons of werewolf movies. Werewolf transformations were like, that's where you gotta go. Although Tom Savini mostly worked on the blood and guts of, of the the Romero uh, zombie films like Dawn of the Dead. But The Sword and the Sorcerer worked with th- these prosthetic effects and, and went crazy with them on this low budget. And th- in the first scene, when they raise the sorcerer up, the coffin that it's in uh, is covered in carved faces and when they begin to raise the sorcerer those faces come to life and they're fleshy and they're covered in blood and it's super gross Uh, it's also really ludicrous to look at now but it, it still retains um a sense of the of grand guignol like there's blood everywhere the sorcerer rises up out of a pool of blood and then he's like drippy and glistening and stuff and he's disgusting which is different from The Rise of a Dark Lord in Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, in specifically his attempt at a novel, Hour of the Dragon. And then also, to some degree, the movie follows, Sword and the Sorcerer follows some of the plot components of the shorter story, Black Colossus. But in both of those stories, you've got The Rise of a Dark Lord, And in Black Colossus, we also have some of the elements from Sword and the Sorcerer. We have a beautiful woman going and finding the mercenary Conan and asking him to help. Uh, Those are elements that we find in the Sword and the Sorcerer. But that rise of a Dark Lord at the very beginning of the story is absolutely adaptation. We might say, uh, going back to those three modes of engagement, those three blades of engagement, that that this that the sword and the sorcerer owes a debt to telling. So we do have a move in the terms in terms of this idea of modes of engagement from telling to showing. That Albert Pyun absolutely adapts a scene from Hour of the Dragon into the Sword and the Sorcerer, whereas the stuff that Pyun derives from Black Colossus is more inspiration. It's not really direct adaptation. So yeah, there's there's the influence of Conan, but I don't know how there couldn't be. You're making a fantasy film in 1982. Conan's on your mind, but not necessarily just because of the novels. Or sorry, I shouldn't say the novels, the collections of paperback books, although there were novels as well. There were all sorts of pastiches that were being written by um, all sorts of, of fantasy writers, people like Andrew Offutt and... Sprague de Camp, uh, Bjorn Nyberg were producing these novel length Conan stories. But even if you weren't reading the paperbacks, you might know about the Marvel Comics. And I think the Marvel Comics have as much an influence on The Sword and the Sorcerer as the Howard books do. Academics often talk about Howard as though he's the only. Creator of Conan, and certainly he's the he's the seminal creator of Conan. Um, but there's all these other adaptations, these these pastiches, these works where people take the character and they do new things with them, and transform that character in many ways. Uh, Talon. Is not a uh, talon, the, the hero of Sword and the Sorcerer, is not a cut rate Conan. Uh, Alec Worley describes Lee Horsley in uh, his costume as a rather puny barbarian swordsman, padded out with furs and a mane of overstyled hair. And while that may be true, I don't think Lee Horsley's talon is supposed to look like Conan. And here's where we get into another aspect of fantasy, but this is reaching way, 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 way back to one of the. Uh, antecedents for modern fantasy in film, uh, which is The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, the Errol Flynn movie from 1938. Now, again, Worley says that this movie has has this good-humored abandon of an Errol Flynn swashbuckler. But he doesn't, take it, he doesn't take it a step further. And I remember when I read that, it didn't really think much of it. It was just like Errol Flynn's swashbuckler. But then it was rolling around in my head, and I came across an image, and I'm going to put this one up on the Instagram as well, from that Errol Flynn film, from The Adventures of Robin Hood. And it shows Robin Hood with a sword, shows Errol Flynn standing there with a sword, and it's gleaming with this sort of pink aura. And it reminded me so much of a shot in the sword and the sorcerer, which I will also put up on Instagram of Talon standing there with the triple bladed sword and it's gleaming in the light. And there's just this sort of pinkish reddish glow on it. It's not just because it's covered in gore. When I, when, as I got older and I thought about sword and the sorcerer and the way that they filmed it, I was like, wow, they, you know, there was that whole airbrush thing, like I said earlier, And I wondered about that, like, why would you go that route when you could be all gritty and and realistic like Conan the Barbarian and so many other sword and sorcery movies, other heroic fantasy films that were released after this that were filmed on the cheap. They didn't try half as hard as this movie does to look this shiny. What is Albert Pion up to? I kept thinking and I, I made that connection to Excalibur. But seeing these two images, this image of Errol Flynn standing there with his sword and it gleaming, and then seeing this image of Lee Horsley standing there with a triple-bladed sword and it's gleaming. Now, granted, Lee Horsley has a lot less clothing on than Errol Flynn does, but, but if Errol Flynn had been making movies in the 1980s, I think he'd have had his clothes off a lot more too. Um, but he's there. He is there. He stands, and he and he just he he strikes this pose in this moment of the movie, and holds it. And I often tell people when they're watching a movie, if they see something, they go, well, why did that happen? They shouldn't just go, why did that happen? They should stop and say, well, why did that happen? Why is the, why is the producer doing that at that point? I think, and to some degree, I've had this corroborated by Pyun's partner, uh, had a, uh, an exchange over social media and had this confirmed that uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood was a huge influence on Pyun. Uh, as a filmmaker, if not directly on The Sword and the Sorcerer. And I mean, you don't have to be a genius to see this if you've seen both of these movies. Beyond this very clear, I think I think that shot is a cinematic homage to The Adventures of Robin Hood. I think Pyon is making an homage to The Adventures of Robin Hood, but he's also doing it in a way that celebrates the popularity of the Conan stuff. Maybe Pyon was a fan of it. I don't know. But Talon's father's name is Richard, for heaven's sake. And I mean, in The Adventures of Robin Hood, they're waiting for King Richard the Lionheart to come back. Well, Pyun kills him fairly early in the film. So we know he's not coming back, but there is still that that evidence of inspiration there of, of Richard the King. There's a There are all sorts of plot connections. They aren't perfect plot connections. You can't go like he's just cribbing again. He's just pulling this stuff. Like Worley says that all is doing is he's stealing from Howard that's garbage um, there is very little Howard in the sword and the sorcerer after the beginning of the film and maybe I could see uh, the idea that there's a little bit of it at the very end of the film that again it mirrors Black Colossus but he if he's, he's pulling from two works by Howard Howard Hour of the Dragon and Black Colossus and for the most part he really doesn't touch Howard the rest of the time because Talon is the leader of a band of merry men. He rides up with a bunch. He's, he's got a whole gang of people. Conan doesn't travel with people. He's not, a, he's not an extrovert in that way. He's, he's, he stays by himself. He's a solitary figure. Uh, he doesn't quest with eight other companions to drop a ring into a mountain. That's not Conan's style. Conan's not a chosen one. He is not the promised emancipator. There's no sense of destiny to Conan's story in Robert E. Howard's work. There's absolutely destiny to Conan's story in, in the pastiches. But in Howard, that's not there. But The Adventures of Robin Hood retains some of that stuff. That sense of like, we know that Robin Hood is destined to free everyone, you know, to rob from the rich and give to the poor. And that's Talon. Talon is he's he's got Conan features there's there's stuff going on there that owes a little bit to Conan no doubt about it no doubt about it but that's that's this amalgamation of Conan it's not Howard's Conan it's Howard's Conan mixed with Marvel Comics Conan mixed with all the pastiches Conan this this is is sort of quintessential barbarian but he is really Errol Flynn I think that's who Talon most looks like. He looks like Errol Flynn. You know, they go on about him having this bad quaff, this bad hair. And I'm like, it looks an awful lot like Errol Flynn's wig in The Adventures of Robin Hood. There's a scene in The Adventures of Robin Hood as well, where Marion goes to the merry men to say, you have to go rescue Robin Hood because he's going to be killed. And there's a scene in The Sword and the Sorcerer where a woman goes, it's not Marion, uh, but a woman goes to uh, Talon's men. And says, you know, we gotta, we gotta rescue him, and that actually sort of happens twice. Uh, There's the rescue of Robin Hood from his hanging in *Adventures of Robin Hood*, and there is the rescuing of Talon from his crucifixion in *The Sword and the Sorcerer*. So, you know, and someone might point to that and go, well. Conan was crucified in a witch shall be born. Yeah, but he was crucified on, you know, out in the desert and then he sucked on the blood of a vulture. Uh, That is not what is going down in uh, the sword and the sorcerer. There is far more um, content going on there that, that, that resonates with the adventures of Robin hood. Uh, and that's a connection that I realized was there and I wanted to explore. And so I've been exploring that, um, for about a year, maybe, maybe two is just sort of a on the side thing. Um, and, and that goes again, showing the modes of engagement, that what we have here is showing to showing that there is this inspiration, this line of inspiration and adaptation running from adventures of Robin hood to the sword and the sorcerer. You might ask, well, At what point does playing come into this? Well, it doesn't. Um, Not for the most part. Although apparently there were uh, triple-bladed swords made as toys, which seems ridiculous for me. uh, To me, to this day, I'm like, you made a toy of a sword from a movie that kids couldn't go see? That's nuts. Um, But whatever. I never saw one in person uh, because I would have bought it right there. Like I said earlier, I I did play uh, characters who were like Talon, and I always wanted to have a triple-bladed sword. And I know that it did uh, D12 uh, damage, which is serious damage for those of you who are not Dungeons & Dragons people. Uh, It was way overpowered. It was way OP. If there was any hard and fast interactivity with Sword and the Sorcerer, I'd say it was because it was a product of a time when, you know, renting videos was an actual activity. It was something that you did for fun. And I grew up in Medicine Hat, Alberta, which was at one point the video capital of Canada. At least that's what I read in my newspaper. We had more VCRs and video stores per capita than any other place in Canada, because there just wasn't that much to do in Medicine Hat. And... So I would rent The Sword and the Sorcerer as often as I could. And one of the great things about, I remember, about renting movies was that you could, of course, rewind and watch it again and rewind and watch it again. And I would watch this one sequence of the film where um, Talon sees his family murdered And he's a young Talon. um, And it looks like he's going to get there just in the nick of time. And um, David Whitaker's score swells at this point. Uh, And then he doesn't make it there in time. But what does he do instead? He he takes vengeance. Um, And I would watch that scene over and over again to the point where... I could probably Rocky Horror Picture Show that shit. I I, could, I I would stand in the room, in the right position, and do everything that Talon did. Uh, I just loved that scene so, so much. Now, on the topic of David Whitaker's score, I've read reviews on... Um, the score that that say one of his best. And it and it has always struck me um, how much I loved it, but how different it is from the Conan the Barbarian score. The Conan score is, is incredibly operatic. Gorgeous, gorgeous music by Basil Pellidorus. Boom 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 boom. Boom, boom boom the big horns, right? Dun, dun. It's just a different score. It's it's more it's far more muscular. Um but it was one last link. David Whitaker's score was one last link for me in proving this thesis that the Sword and the Sorcerer is as much, if not more, an homage to the adventures of Robin Hood than it is, you know, or as much as as it is to Conan. Um, because this David Whittaker's score is bombastic in a sort of old pomp and circumstance kind of way. It's adventurous. It reminded me in many ways of sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of positivity and optimism. Um, that, and I, I, suppose in many people's minds would be at odds with the horror imagery that the film contains of, you know, the sorcerer ripping out the heart of the witch who resurrects him or at the one point in the film, spoiler alert, um, Someone splits their head open and the sorcerer is beneath, um, that the sorcerer has been hiding there the whole time. Those, those horror images were in some ways at odds with David Whitaker's score. Unless you understand this film as an 80s, you know, post-prosthetic makeup, uh, airbrush-induced fever dream of the adventures of Robin Hood. Um, so those are my thoughts on this film that I love so very much, again, as a way of thinking about how we can take pop culture that we love. And that's a lot of what's going to happen on this, uh, on this podcast, pop culture that we love, or I guess that I love, you have no control over what, you know, and then looking at that through an academic lens or I guess a more rigorous lens is another way of putting it. I don't want to say academic, like it's only academics who can do it. We can all do it. And that's the other thing I want to say about this podcast is that um, as we move into uh, the new school year, I'm, I'm beginning a new semester right away at McEwen University. And because it's COVID, I'm going to be delivering my content online. And rather than be doing double duty where I'm creating a podcast episode and then I'm also creating a lecture, I'm going to take my lecture material for my Introduction to Film course for the fall, and I'm going to be releasing it as episodes of Triple Bladed Sword for the podcast. And that's going to take me a little ways away from the Three Blades of Speculative Fiction with a few of the selections that I have for that course. But I wanted to make you aware of that so it wasn't like a a, a jarring you know, shift from this episode to the next one, or more importantly, maybe the one after that, because uh, the upcoming films that I'll be studying for this course are Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then we go to Little Women, the 2019 version of Little Women. So that will be a bit of a, you know, a little bit of dissonance there. Um, but then we get back into speculative fiction with Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Beautiful, beautiful movie. Uh, we stray away from speculative fiction um, with Black clansmen, To some degree with Moulin Rouge, though I suppose an argument could be made that it's in the wheelhouse. And then Fellowship of the Ring. And then just in time for Halloween, Get Out. Love it. Love that movie so much then Star Wars, and finally, Gravity with Sandra Bullock. And then there's going to be a bit of a break there, where I'm not releasing lecture material, but rather will be uh, working with a, a few extra episodes, uh, more like what I've I just done here. And then moving into 2021, just so you can you know look ahead, and in the one case, maybe read ahead, uh, or watch ahead if you'd like. I'm going to be doing two courses in the winter semester. And so the, 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 there's going to be two episodes of Triple Bladed Sword a week and they will be following two threads, two courses. The one course is on horror film and the movies for that include Nosferatu, the original like silent film, Bride of Frankenstein, Cat People, the 1940s version, not the 1980s one, Horror of Dracula, Hammer movie, um, Night of the Living Dead, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, The Thing, The Ring, you gotta love that, It Follows, and Cabin in the Woods. And then the other strain is going to be following uh, a course where I use a novel called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel as the core of the course, and we look at apocalyptic literature using that novel. So if you wanted to read ahead for that, you could go ahead and check out Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven in preparation for upcoming episodes of Triple Bladed Sword. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe. Tell your friends about it. And by all means, uh, send me some, uh, some comments. You can comment uh, over on the Instagram feed. Thanks so much for joining in for this first episode. I look forward to sharing many more with you.